All right, brothers and sisters in the faith, thank you so much for attending our Bible study for this evening. Before we proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Almighty and loving Father in heaven, thank you so very much for our life and strength. Before we study your holy words, we present ourselves to you, making a commitment, Father, that we will follow your teachings and your divine will because we know that you de desire what is best for each one of us according to your divine purpose. As we study the history of your people and as we see your glorious plans for humanity, help us, Father, to grow a deep appreciation of what you intend to do for each and every one of us. Help us to be alert at all times that we will be able to discern truth from error and be able to follow you all the days of our life. Please forgive completely all our sins. We ask everything, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. All right. Well, praises be to God. We're gathered again once. Uh, we're gathered again today to study God's words. We are doing Bible history. And as we continue to explore the history of God's people as we study the Bible, we can learn more and more about God's plan concerning the redemption of humanity. Today, we're going to talk about the origin of races and nations. If you look at the picture there, pretty colorful, right? Can you see yourself there? I mean, what would we be? Do you see a Filipino there? We all know there's so many different races, different nationalities, yet we know that humanity was wiped from the face of the earth on the day of the flood, leaving only how many families? Noah and his three sons together with their respective wives. And so from these three sons, we come up with all of the races and the variety that we see throughout the people of the world. And so how did this come about? And so let's explore this by looking into the book of Genesis, chapter 10 and the verses 1. This is what it says. Now, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. So we know Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the three sons of Noah, and from the three sons of Noah were born all the cultures, all the people of the earth, from that generation up until now. So somehow, some way, we should be able to trace culture, races, and nations from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is God's plan, and this is an explanation for the origin of nations and races throughout the world. And so when the ark landed upon Ararat, what were Shem, Ham, and Japheth supposed to do? If you still remember, our Bible study from last week, they were supposed to fill the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. This is what they did. To get the answer, we jump to chapter 11 of Genesis. But before we go there, I just want to point out to all of you that Genesis chapter 11 gives us a specific of what happened after Noah and his sons came out of the ark. So Genesis 10 gives us the outline of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis 11 gives us a more personal view of what actually took place. So let's jump to chapter 11 before we go back to chapter 10. This is what it says in Genesis 11, 1 down to 2. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east. 
that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Remember, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to scatter so that they can fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. But instead of doing that, what did they do? They went to a place called Shinar. And there are many archaeologists who believe Shinar is found somewhere in Mesopotamia or somewhere in Babylon. So they went to this place called Shinar and they settled there. Take note, they weren't supposed to settle there. They were supposed to scatter. They were supposed to repopulate the earth. But instead, they defied God. They settled in a place called Shinar and they had one language, not two not three, but one language, and they had the same word. So why did they not go repopulate the earth by spreading and dispersing? Let's read the book of Genesis 11, three down to four. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so instead of scattering and dispersing, which was the will of God, what did they decide to do? They decided to make a name for themselves. Isn't this what a lot of people do nowadays? Instead of following the will of God, instead of searching for the kingdom of God, they want to erect and establish their own kingdom. This is what happened way back then. In the book of Genesis, instead of doing the will of God, they erected a tower and they made a name for themselves. And so when they built this tower and God noticed that, that was, uh, that's what they were doing, what did God decide to do? Genesis 11, 3 to 4. Let's read now 5 down to 9. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are, what does it say? The people are united, and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. I want to pause there for a while. You know, all of us clamor for unity, right? Is it good to be united? It depends on what you're being united at, right? If you're going to unite, not for the purpose of doing the will of God, then it's not good to have unity. What was the will of God? To disperse and repopulate the earth. What did they unite to do? To erect a tower that will reach the heavens. Maybe because they don't want to be defeated by the flood. Maybe it's a way of defying the Lord God. If you send another flood, we can still be safe because after all, we have a tower that we have built to the heavens. And so they were united in breaking the will of God. And because they were united in breaking the will of God, they became very powerful. Because when you're united, you can do a lot of things. Notice God gave humanity talents and gifts. But if it's used the wrong way, it can be a detriment against humanity. Like, for example, there are people who use their talents and gifts to build nuclear weapons, right? God knows the potential of every human being. And so when he saw that they were united and doing the things against the will of God, he decided to do something about that. And verse 7 says, Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them 
all over the world. This was God's gentle way of convincing the people to disperse. What did he do? He created on that day different languages. This is why we can uh, derive the, the uh, languages today from the original languages that came from the Tower of Babel. Why did God do this? So that people would not be able to speak to one another and so disperse according to the language that they understand. Now, was there really a Tower of Babel? Next slide. Because there are some who think it's just a story. It never really took place. Was there really a Tower of Babel? Before we can answer that question, we need to look first at the history of humanity. Because according to some historians, for example, someone by the name of Usher, next slide please, he gave a timeline of biblical events. Let's go ahead and take a look at that before we proceed. So creation was dated around 4004 BC. Global flood, 2348 BC. Tower of Babel, 2242 BC. And the call of Abraham, the time of the judges, the time of the kings, the splitting of the kingdom, north and south, and Christ was born 5 BC. So the Tower of Babel, according to this historian, was built around 2242 BC. Of course, we take this with a grain of salt. We can't really determine the exact figures, but it's probably um, close to that. And so if you can notice, how long ago was the Tower of Babel built? How long ago? If it's 2,242 BC, that would be over 4,000 years old, right? So it took place about 4,000 years ago, the building of the Tower of Babel. Of course, people who believe in evolution, they think this is not true because they say human beings have been around for millions of years. I don't believe human beings have been around for millions of years. You know why? Because if you look at population growth, next slide please, evolutionists claim that human beings have been around for one million years. Given our knowledge of the population growth rate, what should be the size of the current population worldwide? Let's assume, okay, that the global growth rate for human beings to be 0.01% uh, from one million years ago up to the present. That is 100 times less than the current global growth rate. So for, just for the sake of argument, okay? So with a 0.01% growth rate and one million years to work with, according to the math, you know how many people are supposed to be in 2019? Over 10 to the 43 power people. Do you know how many, that, how many that is? 10 to the 43 power? That's about as many as the number of grains of sand, the beaches of the world. That's supposed to be how many people there are in the world. We won't fit here if human beings have been around for millions of years. However, if you use the same growth rate factor in death and disease, and we assume that humanity has been around for about 4,500 years, let's do the math again. Next slide. If we assume a global rate of 0.75%, which is reasonable, and you factor in things such as disease, war, natural disasters, medical improvements in a span of 4,500 years, we get a calculation of about 7 billion people. So the biblical model and the biblical timeline and the date of humanity, it fits the population growth 
math, and so we can assume with great confidence that indeed the biblical timeline is within reason and according to what we can logically come up with. This is why, next slide, I believe in this person's timeline. Maybe not the specifics, but at least the estimate. We haven't been around for millions of years, but for thousands of years, and the Tower of Babel was built around 2,242 B.C., plus and minus a couple of hundred years Maybe, but the question is if it was true that the Tower of Babel was built and there was such a thing, how would we know about it? Well, if it was built and all of humanity knew about it, it would of course produce an influence in future generations. And so, what kind of influence did it produce? Let's read the next slide. The Tower of Babel has traditionally been depicted as a type of ziggurat. Do you know what that is? It's like a pyramid, but it's not completed all the way to the top. It's like the base of the pyramid. It's called a ziggurat. In Mesopotamia, in what used to be called Shinar, guess what they have found? Next slide. They found numerous sites of ziggurats. These are mounds. These are throughout the different ancient worlds. And so what does this mean? Next slide. Ziggurats, pyramids, and mounds, and the like, have been found in many parts of the world, from Mesopotamia to Egypt to South America. The ancient Chinese built pyramids, and the Mississippian culture built mounds. Pyramids are closely, are, are classed slightly different from ziggurats, as are mounds, but the similarities are striking. The reason why there are similarities in the architecture of ancient civilization is because they all use the same technology that they used to build the ziggurat or the Tower of Babel. And so when they dispersed, they took that technology and applied it according to their generation. This is why we have so many different stories about the Tower of Babel. Next slide. There exists many uh, great confirmation of the Bible's account of the Tower of Babel and what happened as a result. Even stories about a tower and sudden language changes appear in ancient histories from Sumerian, Grecian, Polynesian, Mexican, and Native American sources. This is what we would expect since the Tower of Babel was a real event. Language changes, ziggurats, names of Noah found throughout the world, and tower legends are excellent confirmation of the events at Babel. What is an example of a story that depicts the events at Babel? This is a very old, old, old uh, story written in Chinese. Next slide. This is how it looks like. You see the symbols? It's a tower equal grass plus clay plus mankind plus one mouth. What could that be? Do you know what ancient um, bricks were made of? Grass and clay. That's what composed ancient bricks. And so in this Chinese story, there was a tower, which is equivalent of bricks, mankind, one mouth. What does that depict? The story of the Tower of Babel. This is just one instance of many different stories about the Tower of 
babble. Therefore, it must have actually happened. But the next question is, next slide, is the Tower of Babel still with us today? Can we actually go see it? That would be nice if we could, right? But it was built 4,000 years ago. And if, it's been, uh, if it was built 4,000 plus years ago, the chances that it still exists is kind of nil, right? But can you find like maybe remnants of it? Next slide. Also, there was an archaeological artifact called a steel. What is a steel? A steel is actually a rock slab with pictures and inscriptions on it. Archaeologists, they love it when, when they find things like that. Why? Because when they found the steel, this Tower of Babel steel, it has an image of Nebuchadnezzar next to the Tower of Babel. It shows its shape as a ziggurat, a step pyramid, or a pyramid with several flat layers on it. So when archaeologists discovered this, they were very excited. The reason why they were very excited is because this ziggurat, this steel, what's left of it, a remnant of it, that they found also had an image of Nebuchadnezzar. How many here remember Nebuchadnezzar? He was what? The king of Babylon, right? And Babylon, they were the ones who enslaved the people of Judah. The Ju the Judah was the people of God. And so when they found this image and an inscription of what um, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. Next slide. This is a, a sample image of what they look like. What did the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar desire to do? Next slide. The ruler of the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, wanted to tear it down. Why? Because he wanted to rebuild it. But he was not able to get an opportunity to do that. Why? Because he died, right? And who eventually enslaved or took over or conquered uh, Babylon, Persia. Persia, eventually, they were destroyed by the Greeks. And so when Alexander the Great found the steel, when they found the remnants of the Tower of Babel, right, what did he want to do? Next slide. Alexander the Great, who was the founder of the Third Empire, Greece, he did, in fact, tear down the Tower of Babel. He also wanted to rebuild it. But Alexander died at a very young age before he can rebuild it. So the tower passed into history. Alexander the Great removed bricks and the outer coating, but he never rebuilt it. However, most, re most researchers think they know where the foundation is located. And ancient historians, they write a great deal about the remnants of the Tower of Babel. Here's one by the name of Herodotus, a famous historian. This is what he says when he saw the Tower of Babel. It was a solid central tower, one four-length square with a second erected on top of it, and then a third, and so on up to eight. All eight towers can be climbed by a spiral way running around the outside, and about halfway up there are seats for those who make the journey to rest on. So we have archeological uh, findings, we have historical records, we have ancient stories that all depict that indeed the Tower of Babel really did take place. However, what I really want to focus on concerning the Tower of Babel is not whether or not there are remnants of that, because what is more important is its significance concerning how we communicate with one another.
So let's go back to Genesis chapter 11, 7 down to 9. Bible says, come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Before they started building the Tower of Babel, how many languages did they have? How many? Only one, right? But then God decided to confuse them and create many languages. What was the purpose of God in creating many languages? So that people would not understand each other. They will only understand a group of people. And so naturally, they will go with the pre those people group who understand each other, right? And they disperse and scatter throughout the earth. Well, here's my question. How many languages did God create at the Tower of Babel? Any, uh, any guessers? How many languages? These are original languages. In the beginning, there was only one original language. God confused them at the Tower of Babel and created other original languages. How many do you think God created? Well, if we go back to Genesis 10, we get a hint. Genesis 10, 32 and 5, all these peoples are the descendants of Noah, nation by nation, according to their different lines of descent. After the flood, all the nations of the earth were descended from the sons of Noah, living in their different tribes and countries, each group speaking its own language. And so when God confused the languages, he created at least 70 different languages. And we will look at how we get to that 70 later on when we go to chapter 10. Right now, we kind of jump to 11 because we wanted to know what God, why God decided to disperse them or how God was able to cause them to disperse. And so we know, according to the Holy Scriptures, there were at least 70 original languages all created at one time during the time of the Tower of Babel some 4,000 years ago. Okay? Do you know how many? Next slide. So that's the conclusion. Uh, but I want to ask you the question. Today there are about seven, next slide please, there are about 7,000 languages throughout the world. Today, yeah, there are about 7,000 languages throughout the world. That's a lot of languages, right? Um, according to linguists, do you know what a linguist is? What's a linguist? <laughs> no? I think Brother Paul knows what a linguist is, right? What's a linguist? Lengua. What's lengua? <laughs> a linguist is someone who studies languages. And they want to learn. They want to know the origin of like, how many here? I mean, ever wondered where language came from? Have you ever thought about that? Where did language, where did language came, come from? Did we invent that? If so, who did? <laughs> who made the first language? <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Hmm. And so linguists, they offer a theory concerning the origin of the 7,000 languages throughout the world. What is their theory? Next slide. They say all 7,000 languages came from a single original language. What is that? Tagalog. Just kidding. <laughs> no. You know what they call the original language? Because they believe if evolution is true, right? If evolution is true, then there must have been only one single language. And all the languages come from that one original 
language and what do you call that one original source language next slide please it's called the proto language so from that one proto language you derive all the other languages and how can you derive the other languages how can you find this proto language when you look at the patterns next slide you see when you compare existing languages with the help of written records you find that the french the spanish the italians the portuguese the romanian they all derive from latin, latin. so we can say latin was the mother language of french spanish italian portuguese romanian based on similarities as simple as the numbers un uno dos dos troy tres <laughs> we can see evidence of a common source language so far so good but all of a sudden you stumble upon this the chinese numbers do not sound anything like what the french and the spanish and the english call their numbers the first three numbers in chinese are yi er san <laughs> completely different and so what is their conclusion well, so far, linguists have all settled on this number. Next slide. There are 94 proto-languages. Not one. They cannot explain how you can derive one of these proto-languages into a source language. And so there is a big problem for the linguists. But according to the Bible, next slide. How many? Or in the Bible, there were at least 70 proto-languages. They were all created at the Tower of Babel. And so what happened there at the Tower was a miracle because in one instant, there was a creation of 70 proto-languages. And when you look at the rate by which languages develop, 4,000 years is just about the right time to develop 7,000 languages from seven proto-languages. This is why we believe in the biblical account. Now, those who believe in evolution, they have to find an answer to how language came up in the first place. And according to linguists, there's a journal, a scholarly journal called the Journal of Psychology and Theology. And the topic, the uh, name of the article is Languages and Genes. Can they be built up through random change and natural selection? According to researchers, you know what they said? Next slide. The theory that any language could arise by chance has been refuted logically and mathematically. The idea that the language capacity could come about by chance more than once, if you say 94 proto-languages came about by chance, is even less likely than it's evolving accidentally just once. So linguists they have no idea where language came from and they have no idea how it led to the 7,000 languages that we have today at so fast a pace not only that there was this famous uh linguist next slide Do you know who that is who is that <laughs> i don't know him either his name is mark pagel next slide and he's a professor at the university of reading in the, in the united kingdom and he heads a team of a team searching for an evolutionary explanation for our many languages. But this is what he noticed. Next slide. You could take a gorilla or a chimpanzee 
from its troop and plop it down anywhere these species are found, from Africa, the Philippines, to wherever. And it would know how to communicate. You could repeat this with donkeys, crickets, goldfish, and you get the same outcome. Doesn't matter where you take them from and take them to, they'll be able to communicate. This highlights an intriguing paradox at the heart of human communication. If language evolved to allow us to exchange information, how come most people cannot understand what most other people are saying? In other words, if, human, if humans evolved language in order to communicate with each other, then why did language continue to evolve in a way that interfered with such communication? There's only one explanation. The Tower of Babel. The purpose of that was to interfere with their communication. This is why when we look at the, the facts, it fits well with the biblical record of the Tower of Babel. And so we find evidence for the existence of the Tower of Babel and the miracle of the Tower of Babel in our languages and also with ancient artifacts. However, let's go back to Genesis chapter 10 and look at the origin of culture, race, and nationalities. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 10. Remember that uh, Noah had three sons. What were, they, what were their names again? Japheth. Ham. Shem. Who was your favorite? Your favorite son. If you, got, if you get a chance to choose, who would you choose to be a uh, your great, 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 great ancestor. Who would you want to be? Who would you, who would you want it to be? Shem. Why Shem? <laughs> Why not Ham? <laughs> Why Shem? Because Shem, number two, <laughs> because Shem received the blessing of God, right? God will fellowship through Shem. The promised seed will come from the line of Shem. And so I would probably lose probably would choose Shem. Filipinos, where do you think they came from? Ham, Japheth, or Shem? Where do you think? <laughs> well, we got to find out, right? Because you, um, when you ask, you know, different people, they say different things. The uh, popular belief is um, we came from Ham. Filipinos came from Ham. But when you look at, when we look at Genesis chapter 10, we're going to see that's kind of off, Okay. This is why it's so important for us to look at Genesis chapter 10, because we can see where the Filipinos came from, who our ancestors were. Is that okay? Let's see if, it, if we came from Japheth. Is that okay? Could it be Japheth? Could it be? Let's go with Japheth first. Um, Genesis chapter 10, 2 down to 5, the sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tiras. Do those names sound familiar to you? Yeah. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Ripath and Togarma. Whew, those are hard names. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarnish, Kitim and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So next slide, please. So we have the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth had how many sons? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven sons. Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, Tiras. These descendants of Japheth 
where did they go occupying and settling? Next slide, please. Here we can see a color representation. Red represents the descendants of Japheth. Where did they go? Up north. Is the Philippines somewhere north there? I don't think so. Ham, where did they go? Ham is the purple one. Towards Africa, Ham, right? And Shem, where did they go? Towards the east. But let's not dwell on that too much. I just wanted to give you kind of an overview, right? So basically, Japheth and his descendants, they occupied the Indo-European area, which includes Greece and those places in Europe, okay? That's where Japheth and his descendants went to go occupying and settling. And so how about the other son, Ham? Let's go to the next slide, Genesis chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham, you can kind of tell where they went to go occupying by the names of the sons, right? Where do you think they went? <laughs> Cush, what is Cush? Cush is like another name for what country? Ethiopia. Where's Ethiopia? Africa. Africa. Egypt. Where's Egypt? Africa. Is Egypt in Africa? Yes. Yeah. Libya. Africa. How about Libya? Africa. Yeah. So the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Libya, and remember? Oh, remember Canaan. And Canaan were the ancestors of the peoples who bear their names. And so we know they came, they went to which direction? Towards Africa. Maybe south. What direction is that? Southwest, right? Southwest, which includes the land of Canaan. Cush was one of the sons of Ham. And Cush gave birth to a famous, famous dictator. Do you know who? Huh? You know who? He was the first dictator of the world. Hitler. No. First of all, Hitler wasn't a descendant of Kush. He was a descendant more of uh, Japheth, right? And so there's a dictator that became very famous. Let's find out who he is. Genesis chapter 10, 8 down to 12. Now, Kush became the father of, have you heard of Nimrod before? Nimrod, he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter. Take note, two times he used the word mighty. He must have been a mighty man with great stature. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. How many times was the word mighty used? Like three times to describe this man. He must have been one of great stature, right? The beginning of his kingdom was... Babel. Could it be that he started the Tower of Babel? Could be. We don't know, right? But whatever was the case, he stayed in Babel because he established his kingdom where? In Babel. And we believe he established the first religion therein, Babel, from which we came. We found Babylon religions. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. So that was one kingdom that he ruled. From that land, he went forth into Assyria, another land, and built Nineveh and Rehobothir. 
and Kala, and resin between Nineveh and Kala. That is a great city. So he was a mighty warrior. And I want you to take note of the kingdoms he was able to establish. One was Babylon, right? Eventually became Babylon, and eventually became Assyria. What do you notice about those two kingdoms? Babylon and Assyria. What do you notice about those two? Assyria and Babylon. Okay. The people of Israel, they were divided into how many kingdoms? Two, right? Who are they? Judah and Israel. The two kingdoms of God. They were divided into two, but both still are the people of God. Who fell first, Judah or Israel? Israel fell first. Do you know who conquered Israel? Assyria. Yeah. Who fell afterwards? Of course, there was only one left. Judah. Do you know who conquered Judah? Babylon. Both we can trace all the way to Nimrod, the first dictator, a mighty dictator from the Babel kingdom. So we can see here a prototype of what's to come in the future. Babylon represents turning away and defiance against God. And it was led by someone by the name of, what's his name again? Nimrod, right? Nimrod, it was a mighty person. How mighty was he? Next slide. Could it be that he was one of the Nephilims? Because the Bible says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward or after the flood. And so he was a man of renown, mighty men. Could it be? That Nimrod also gave birth, not birth, but uh, also eventually gave rise to the line of giants. Next slide. Because if we read Numbers uh, 13, 28 to 29, the people who lived there are powerful. He was referring to the place where Canaan resided. And he found there, they saw giants, the descendants of Enoch. Could it be that uh, these giants that they saw were descendants of Nimrod? A mighty warrior. Many Bible scholars believe that is uh, the case. And what is fascinating about Nimrod is, next slide, Nimrod appears as a character in the mythology of many ancient cultures. Did you know that? He shows up in Hungarian, Greek, Arabic, Syrian, and, Amer and Armenian legends. There's evidence that the Epic of Gilgamesh and the myth of Hercules will find their origins in Nimrod's life. Nimrod was undoubtedly a powerful, charismatic hero figure of the ancient world who actually attempted to build a tower to heaven, hoping to thwart the plans of God. It's a pretty good description of people who defy God, right? They become powerful and charismatic, but in the end, they are futile in their Efforts and so the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Libya. Who else was included? Next slide. Not only Cush, Libya, and Egypt, but also Canaan. And so, what happened to the descendants of Canaan? Next slide. Genesis 10 15 and 19. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hevite, and the Archite, and the Sinite and the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterward the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. Territory of the Canaanite extends from Sidon as you go toward Geror as far as Gazar, Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and Admah, 
and Zeboim as far as Lasha. So who became the descendants of Canaan, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hevites, Canaanites. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, does it sound familiar? It should, because next slide, before the people of Israel were to go to the promised land after they left Egypt, God spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to the people, this is what he said to the people of Israel, before they go to the promised land in Canaan. He said, the Lord your God will bring you into the land that you are to occupy, and he will drive many nations out of it. As you advance, he will drive out seven nations larger and more powerful than you. Who were they? Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Hevites, Jebusites. They're all descendants of Canaan. And so the Israelites conquered all of these people in Canaan. Remember the prophecy of Noah concerning Canaan? They were supposed, they're going to be what? Servants. Servants, slaves of slaves of your brothers. And so we can see here a fulfillment of that because this was fulfilled during the conquest led by Joshua. Okay, so we have Japheth, we have Ham, and I don't think Philippines fits. Do you see Ham fitting there? I mean, do you see the Philippines fitting in Ham's territory? It's sort of Egypt, right? So, which leaves us with what? <laughs> with Shem, right? So what happened to Shem? Let's read the book of Genesis chapter 10. 21 and 22, sons were also born to Shem, whose elder brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber, the sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. And so those are the descendants of Shem. How many uh, sons did he have? One, two, three, four, five. Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. Turns out, Genesis chapter 11 focuses on the line of Shem. But we'll go to that. But before we go to that, we know so far, next slide, that this is where the sons of Noah went to go occupying and settling. Descendants of Japheth, north of the Black Sea. Descendants of Ham, south of the Mediterranean Sea. And the descendants of Shem towards the Persian Gulf. And also East. Did you notice that? But the Philippines is not shown there. Could it be that the Philippines came from the line of Shem? Could it be? What do you think? I mean, where else would it fit? Right? If we look at Genesis 10, a plain reading of Genesis 10, we find the Philippines came not from Japheth, because the Philippines is not north of the Black Sea, not from Ham, because the Philippines is not in Africa. So where could it be? Probably somewhere where Shem went to, right? That's what I believe. And so when the sons of Noah went to their different places, what did they do there? Next slide. Genesis 10, 32. This is the final verse of, 30, uh, of Genesis chapter 10. All these people are the descendants of Noah, nation by nation, according to their different lines of descent. After the flood, all the nations of the earth were descended from the sons of Noah. And so when they went to their different places, they established nations. How many nations were established during the days of Noah's sons? Next slide. If we go back to the family tree, Noah had three sons. Japheth, 
14 nations. If you go back to Genesis 10, you can actually count it. Ham, 30. Shem, 26. 26 plus 30 plus 14. How many is that? How many, <laughs> how many is that? 26 plus 14, that's 40 plus 30. Next slide, you have 70 nations that the sons of Noah account for. And the 70 nations are going to be the template by which the other nations are to be derived. Now that's 70, that number 70. Does that sound familiar? Do you think God chose that number haphazardly without a purpose? I don't think so. God never does things haphazardly, right? And so what could be God's purpose? What is he trying to tell us with that 70? Next slide. In Genesis 32, 7 to 9, God is speaking to Moses here. Uh, Moses is the one uh, speaking here. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. The number 70. Because God is telling us here, when he divided the inheritance of the nations and determined the boundaries of the people of the descendants of Adam, he said it was according to the number of the children of Israel. You see that? You know who Israel, what was his original name? Israel? Jacob. You know, when Jacob, when Jacob and his descendants went to Egypt, how many were there? Genesis 46, verse 27, two sons were born to Joseph in Egypt, bringing to how many? Seventy, the total number of Jacob's family who went there. And so in determining the 70 for the nations that will come from the sons of Noah, God already had in his mind the descendants of who? Jacob. Because the descendants of Jacob will be used to bless all the people of the world. How so? Next slide. Luke chapter 10, 1 down to 2. Now after this, the Lord. Who's the Lord there? Our Lord, Jesus Christ. The Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful. So in God's mind, he's already planning the coming of the Messiah and the spread of the gospel. And so even back during the days of Noah's sons, he was already planting the seeds of a great harvest. When was that great harvest finally come? When Christ came and he sent the disciples, 70 of them, to be able to reap the harvest. But when we look at the story of uh, Noah's sons, I guess one of, the, one of our brothers asked a question last week because Noah's sons, how many of them were there? Only three, right? And the question came up last week. <laughs> Next slide. And the question was this, where did all the races come from when there were only th three families? Right? The origin, three families. There are three families here, right? And when I look at you, you all kind of look alike. 
I mean, when we look at the races of the world, you can see there's a variety, right? Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Filipino, German, right? They're all different. Where did they all come from? Next slide. For example, there are different colors. They even say some are white, right? They say some are yellow. But in actuality, there's only really one color. What is that color? Brown. brown. There's no white. There's no yellow. We're all brown. Just different shades of brown. Wait a minute. How can you explain that we have so many different colors, so many different uh, shapes, when we only came from three families, right? How is that even possible? Well, let's take, for example, skin color. What is responsible for our skin color? It's a pigment called what? Next slide. It's called melanin, right? It is melanin that gives us the skin color. If you have a lot of melanin, you are dark. If you don't have that much melanin, you are light. If you have no melanin, you are albino, right? And so for the sake of simplicity, let's say melanin is controlled by two genes. Let's call it A and B. And so if you have capital A and capital B in your genes, in your chromosomes, you're going to be really dark. But if you have A, small a and small b, you're going to be really light. If you have capital A, capital B, capital A, capital B, then you are middle brown, okay? So let's, for the sake of simplicity, let's say, of course it's not this simple, but for the sake of simplicity, that our skin color is determined by A and B genes, whether they're dominant or recessive, capital A, or small a, capital B, or small b, okay? So far so good? We're gonna do a little bit of genetics today. How many here studied genetics in school? Yeah? Brother Ivan, you studied genetics? All right. Praises be to the Lord God. Next slide. So we have this combination, big A and big B. That's the most you can get. You're going to be very dark. You have a lot of melanin. Next slide. If you have small A, small B, you have no melanin. You're going to be really light. Okay. So let's go ahead and come up, with, uh, generate a next, next slide, a Punnett square. If you still remember your genetics, remember that? Right? You want to do it? Pretend it's like a whiteboard. <laughs> and so we have the possibilities from the father, let's say the father is the one on the horizontal, the mother's on the vertical. These are the possibilities, A, big A, big B, big A, small B, small A, big B, small A, small B, okay? So what are the different combinations? Next slide. So for example, if your dad gives you AB, capital AB, capital A, capital B, and your mom gives you also a capital A and a capital B, what's, what's gonna be your skin color? Next slide. It's going to be capital A, capital B, capital A, capital B. Is that, is that dark or is that light? Yeah, next slide. It's really dark. Okay. Uh, if we go to the end of that uh, row, next slide, please. So we have a capital A and capital B and a small a and a small b. You get AA, BB. What is that? Is that uh, really light? Yeah, you guys are getting good at this. Next slide. It's medium. That's actually representative of a majority of the world's population. And so when you have just in two genes, next slide, 
you have genetic variability. So all of these possible colors are available to two individuals. This is making it very simple. So Adam and Eve, next slide, all of the different shades of color are available through genetic variability because all of it is contained in their genes. And so when you combine genes through sexual intercourse and having a baby, you're going to mix up those genes and you produce all those different colors. So there's diversity even if there are only two people. That's the wonderful thing about genetics. And that genetic diversity was passed on to Noah, next slide, and his sons and their descendants. So you have genetic variability, genetic diversity built into individuals. But then something happened. Next slide. What happened? They were all dispersed, right? Because of the Tower of Babel. Because of the different languages, they were forced to work together, not with everyone, but specific groups of people who understand each other. And so when that happened, what happened to the gene pool? It became isolated. And so the genetic variability went from being big to becoming small. What do you mean? Next slide, please. And so, for example, if one people group, the population there contained in a big A, big B, big A, big B. And so what do you think would happen to their descendants? They're going to be very dark. Next slide. If another people group, most of them are small A, small B, small A, small B, what's going to happen to that people group? How are they going to look like? Very light skinned. This is why we find a variety or we find different colors in different people groups because of the isolation of the human gene pool. If there was no dispersion of the population back at the Tower of Babel, all of us are going to look very, very the same, or we're gonna have a genetic variability, and you will look at one country, and they're gonna look just like the other countries. Meaning to say, they're gonna have a variety of different looks, a cosmopolitan look, which is what's happening now, especially in California, because you have this interbreeding. And so the isolation of the gene pool is now becoming, uh, it's, it's, it's again being developed, right? And so you go back to the genetic variability. And this is, we can say the same thing about, next slide, eyes, same thing. And height and face structure, because all that is determined by the genes. One gene has a lot of genetic information. You know how much genetic, genetic information? To give you an idea of how much, how many, what's the possibility of, for genetic diversity, I want you to consider this. Do you know how many atoms there are in the universe? Next slide. Do you know how many atoms there are in, in the universe? Do you know what an atom is? you know what an atom is? An atom is like the smallest thing that you can divide matter into, right? Without having all kinds of uh, problems. You can go to proton, neutron, if you split that up, physics changes. But the atom, it kind of still stays the same. But it's just the smallest indivisible unit, right? You know how many atoms there are in my fingernail right here? My fingernail? <laughs> Millions of atoms, right? 
billions of atoms. You know how many atoms there are in the whole universe? 10 to the 80th power. Is that a lot? That's a lot. You can't even conceive of that number. Consider that number when I ask you this following question. Next slide. If we took one man and one woman, doesn't matter who they are, how many children could you potentially have without having two of the same combination of genetic information? You know how many? Next slide. Wow. 10 to the 2017th power. Oh my goodness. You cannot even imagine. That's more add. That's, that's that number, that information is vastly greater than the number of atoms in the entire universe. This is why with just two people, you have a lot of genetic variability. And so next slide, we find people like these two. That girl there, do you see the girl at the bottom? That's the smallest human. You know how tall she was? 26 inches. Wow. The smallest human. And that's, uh, what's his name? Walt, is it Waldo? Like the tallest human on record or taken by a photograph. Okay. You see the genetic diversity in the human gene pool? That woman right there, is she human? How about that man right there? Is he human? Yeah. Why are they so different? Because of the genetic diversity that God built into the gene pool. All that information is in the genes of humanity. Well, wait a minute. Human beings, are we of the same race? Because our question for this Bible study is the origin of races. How many races do we have according to genetics? Next slide. We're going to look at a study by Natalie Angier, do races differ? Not really, DNA shows, okay? And scientists at the National Institutes of Health recently announced that they had put together a draft of the entire sequence of the human genome. What was their conclusion? Next slide. And the researchers had unanimously declared there is only one race, the human race. What's our color? There's no different color, there's only one color. What is that color? Brown. We're just all different shades of brown. You know, when they had DNA to study, they were able to refute what was concluded by Darwin. How many here are familiar with Darwin? It was the author of theory of evolution. According to the theory of Darwin, you have different races, not one race. Next slide. This is what I learned from high school. That the different races came from different missing links. And each race developed at their own speeds. This is why you have different races. And according to Darwin, the most developed of the races were the Caucasian race. The other races, well, they were not yet fully evolved. This is why when you think about the theory of Darwin, it is very racist. In fact, Hitler used the theory of evolution proposed by Darwin to come up with eugenics, the cleansing of the human race by getting rid of all races except for the Aryan race. All of these ideas came from the theory of evolution because they believe that uh, evolution for the different races come at different speeds. And the Aryan race happens to be, Caucasian race happens to be the most evolved 
amongst all of us. I don't know, do you accept that? You see, what was unavailable to Darwin was DNA. <laughs> DNA was unavailable yet. When they study the DNA, the researchers concur. What do they say? All of us belong to how many races? One race, one race, not many races. This is what the Bible teaches as well. Acts 17, verse 26, he made also of one blood every nation of men to dwell upon all the face of the earth, having ordained times before appointed and the bounds of their dwelling. So according to scriptures, we belong to just one race. What is that? The human race. And the DNA proves that what the Bible says here is true and refutes the theory of evolution. You know, you look at the, th the theory of linguistics, it refutes evolution. When you look at uh, the genetics of, huma of human beings, it refutes evolution. So when we look at the Holy Scriptures, God is trying to tell us something. We were not evolved from lesser beings. We were created by God in His image. This is why, next slide, let's look past the genetics. Hair color, hair, hair amount, eye shape, skin shade, height, weight, all genetics, right? We're all the same human race. So let's look at the person. Mind, needs, heart, cares, hurts, spiritual condition. Can we agree to do that? Yeah? Let's not be racist. <laughs> You know, because if you, I mean, if you look, look at the conclusion that Darwinists make, it's very racist. There's no such thing as many human races, only one. The human race created by our almighty God. Now, I still want to know for sure if the Filipinos, <laughs> which you call a group of people, not the Filipino race, right? A group of people, if we came from Shem, is that okay? Because if you look at Genesis chapter 11, these are the descendants of Shem. It goes to Arphaxad. Remember, he had five sons. And in Genesis 11, they don't describe the other four sons, but only Arphaxad. Arphaxad eventually gives rise to who? Peleg. Peleg eventually gives rise to Terah. And Terah becomes the father of, who is that? Aha! Abram. Who was Abram? Next slide. Genesis 11, 27, 32. These are the descendants of Terah, who was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran was the father of Lot. And Haran died in his hometown of Ur in Babylonia. What his father was still living. Abram married who? Sarai, who happens to be his half-sister. And Nahor married Milcah, the daughter of Haran, who was also the father of Iska, Sarai was not able to have children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, who was the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, Abraham's wife. And with them he left to the city of Ur, Babylonia, to go to the land of Canaan. They, were, they went as far as Haran and settled there. Terah died there at the age of 205. You know, Abraham begets who? The promised son, who's that? Isaac. Isaac. Begot who? Jacob. Jacob, from him comes the 12 tribes of Israel. From Israel, we know, will come forth the Messiah, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And so God decided to take the promised seed from the line of Abraham, which came from Peleg, 
and from our faction. Huh? Well, how about the Filipinos? <laughs> I'm just really curious. Eh? Right? We know that, uh, next slide, that Arfekshad was the father of Shelah. Next slide. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, right there. Arfekshad was the father of Shelah, who was the father of Eber. Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg, because during his time, the people of the world were divided. Tower of Babel. Right? And the other was named Joktan. So Eber, Eber eventually becomes Hebrew. Eber is the father of the Hebrews. So when you talk about the Hebrew language, we talk about the Eber language. But Eber had two sons. One was Peleg. One was Joktan. So Eber, we can say he can kind of the father of the Hebrews. But he had two sons, Peleg, Joktan. From Peleg comes forth Abraham. Well, how about Joktan? Joktan. <laughs> Does that sound Filipino? A little bit? Joktan. <laughs> I don't know. Well, let's take a look. Genesis 10, 26, 30. Joktan begot Almodad, Shelef, Hazar Maveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba. Who else? Ophir. Who else? Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Mesha, as Iran, as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. Wow. So there is this Ophir that came from Joktan. And he was to go from Iran to the east, to the outermost part of the east, the mountain of the east, in a place called Sephar. Mountain of the east, Sephar. Do you know what Sephar means? If you look at the, the way languages evolve and look at the ancient Hebrew, Sephar means tree of life. <laughs> Next slide. So if you go to a study of uh, Solomon's Gold, by the way, we're not endorsing uh, the Solomon's Gold series. We are simply referencing it because we find it interesting. We agree with some of it, but not all of it. But this part is very interesting. The ancestor Arphaxad inherited Iran and Israel. Joktan's son, Ophir, heads east. Where? Towards Havilah. Why? Because that's where the Garden of Eden is at. And where is the, where is the Garden of Eden at? That's where, that's where also the Tree of Life is at. And so the mountain of the east and Sephar was ancient Havilah. And so Ophir went to Philippines. <laughs> so we are connected to Shem. And in our future Bible studies, we will show you that we are also of Hebrew descent. We know we came from Eber, which is the father of the Hebrew. So in that sense, we're already kind of like Hebrew descent, right? But we will even show you that we are related to the Hebrews through Ophir in our future Bible studies. Why is that significant? Next slide. Final passage of our study today, the book of Isaiah. 43, 5 to 6, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east 
and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. We know this prophecy well, right? It is about God's work of bringing people, calling people from where? The east. During what time? Ends of the earth. Now we know. We know this was fulfilled in the calling of the Iglesia de Cristo in the last days, 1914. And, you know, when we would look at this prophecy, Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, we would often ask ourselves, wait a minute, aren't you taking it out of context? Because Isaiah 43 is talking about Israel and Jacob. And this is a prophecy in the last days about descendants. But if the Filipino people are of Hebrew descent, this would make perfect, perfect sense. This is why our study of the origins of the different people groups, it's very, very impactful. Because when it says, I will bring your descendants from the East, now we can believe. Not only is it a spiritual connection to the people of Israel, but even by blood. Because we descended also from the Hebrew people. So when God speaks about his descendants or the descendants of Isaiah being the Filipino, it makes so much sense. This is why it's nice to study the history of the people of God. It shows us that our calling and our election is indeed biblically based. Okay, that is our study for today. Let us all stand for our prayer. Almighty and everlasting Father, thank you so much for your great blessings. Thank you for giving us insight. Thank you for showing us our heritage. Indeed, you have created one race. We also believe there is this work of yours in setting people apart from which your promised seed will come from. Thank you for he was sent to earth and he became our Messiah. And we believe, Father, that in these last days, you also have a work of salvation of which we are all parts of. Thank you for our calling and election. Yes. For making it clear to each one of us that we are your people in these last days. Yes. We promise you, Father, we will do our best that we will shine forth in righteousness, proclaiming your words all over the world. Amen. Lord Jesus, we call upon you as well. Yes. Thank you so much for your sacrifice. We worship and praise you. May you be with us as we dwell here. May you always protect us and guide us in all that we do. Yes. Father, bless your people all over the world. Help yes. us to be able to preserve your true words that will lead to our life everlasting. Amen. We ask everything, O oh Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.